Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Later on in this episode, we'll hear from the author of a new book that argues that motorsport is a technological force for good and is making important contributions to how we are decarbonizing the economy. But first, I meet an expert in how quantum computation can be applied to machine learning. Quantum computation is a hot topic in physics, both in terms of basic research and commercial interest, with companies ranging from tech giants to university startups working in the sector. As well as the considerable challenges of building practical quantum computers, working out which problems can benefit from quantum computation is an important area of research. To talk about how quantum computation can be applied to machine learning, I'm joined down the line from South Africa by Maria Schuld, who works for Xanadu, a Canadian company that makes photonic quantum processing units. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Harvish. Thanks for having me here. So, Maria, let, let's start with the basics. What is machine learning? Yes, so this depends on who you ask. Machine learning is by now uh, a big, big field that spans from um, commercial applications to academic research. And even within academic research, it has a lot of flavors because it's a mixture of different fields. So if you ask the statistician, statistician they might talk about uncertainty and, uh, I don't know, saying something about small sample sizes. A computer scientist may talk about how not to program computers, but make them um, solve big optimization tasks. Maybe an AI robotic specialist will talk about, uh, you know, making machines interact with humans. So it really, really depends a bit on who you ask. For me, the main concept that is always there when we talk about machine learning is the idea of generalizing from limited amounts of data to how to solve new tasks or other tasks and also have computers do that. So the machines in machine learning are usually computers. And um, so an example would be, or one of the most famous examples even is image recognition. This was where machine learning really excelled in recent years. So if you feed uh, images to computers, you also feed labels for these images. So what's on the image, maybe a cat or a dog, um, you know, and then you feed new images and ask the computer, what are the labels? But there are also other things like image generation. You feed a computer images and ask, can you please uh, generate similar images? The idea is like language translation. You feed a computer different um, translation, pieces of translations, and then you feed it new text and ask what's the translation. Or you can go to like a, a very different level and let a robot explore in a room so you get sensual data from the robot. And then you say, okay, go into a new room and then you know, know where you, how you don't bump into walls. So all of these are these tasks where you have data and you, you have to generalize to other tasks. Uh, so the problem to solve is really... Um, or the, the difficulty of this is really to find structure in the data, but to distinguish it from particularities in your data. For example, if you have images where every time there's a dog, one of the pixels is red, but this is complete coincidence. You want a computer system that doesn't uh, draw the false conclusion that this red pixel is now responsible for uh, you know, the decision cat or dog. So generalization is really like finding these patterns. And maybe lastly to say, so one of the very, very big challenges, and I think this is very important for quantum computing as well, is that as machine learning is derived from real-world tasks, 
it's sometimes very hard and, and uh, to formulate this as a mathematical problem. So it's not as sterile as many mathematical problems that physicists are used to. Um, and um, so the reason for that is that what is actually the structure in the data that creates a language or that creates grammar is very hard to capture and is even harder to model mathematically. Otherwise, we wouldn't need machines to learn this. Um, and so this part is very different from a lot of other problems, I would say. And so, so it sounds like um, machine learning has a lot of very practical applications. Um, how could machine learning benefit from, from quantum computation, quantum processing? Yes, so that is obviously the question. And this question has, uh, you know, troubled me now for maybe almost 10 years. Um, I think one of the things that I learned, especially over the last years, is obviously that this question is a motivation. It's a bit like a question of like, is a vegan diet healthy or what is love? Or So it's, it's basically just like a direction we want to investigate. But it's not a research question. It's not answerable by research because it's, it's not well defined. Um, so we have to obviously break it down into research questions, and then we find very different answers. Um, I'll give you a few examples, but, but I also want to say that even this breaking down into some research questions is actually really, really hard. And the reason for this is, so first of all, quantum machine learning is a new field, so we don't have a lot of experience with how to do that. But um, the problem is also that quantum computing is, is at the moment in this funny interplay between the traditional quantum computing, which was academic, which was theoretical, which was uh, asking questions of complexity theory in the ivory tower somehow, and these new prototype devices that we have. So there's a big gap. And so we have only very limited tools to actually um, even even like start answering questions. So when you break down into research questions, you have to be very aware of what you can even answer. And this gives us only very small glimpses. So it's, it's, it's really harder than it sounds to kind of like even phrase this well. But I'll give you a couple of examples of how to break down how can quantum computing help with machine learning into something we can answer and have to a certain extent answered still ongoing investigations, obviously. So the most popular way in quantum computing is uh, a question like, is there a learning problem in the sense of does there exist a learning problem for which we can prove that the runtime of a quantum algorithm, so an algorithm for a quantum computer, scales better with some input, so usually size of the data set or something like that, than a classical algorithm. And so what's important here is that um, this is not the same as can quantum computing help with machine learning as people actually feel this question should be asked. So it's, first of all, a very artificial problem that can be found. So it's cut to size. And in some sense, if you find out that there exists a machine learning problem, I can phrase that the flight of swallows answers. It doesn't mean you have to build a swallow computer. You know what I mean? So this is really important. But also the idea of, of, of scaling is a very specific figure of merit because um, the runtimes can in practice be like, impossible on both computers, but generally the one scales a bit better. This is a very particular flavor of being good or, or bad. And also the high standard uh, being imposed on proving that something is correct, which again limits us very much to, to these artificial problems. However, if you're happy to like accept this in, as an academic question of interest, then uh, yes, there have been cases found and they were beautifully constructed that there are such algorithms where this is true. Can you give us an example or two, Maria? Yes. So uh, another example from this like very popular questions that's the default of traditional quantum computing research is 
is um, a bit more empirical. And this has to do with these like new prototypes we have and people testing them and comes from a bit of a new research uh, paradigm in some sense in quantum computing. And the question would be, if we take a near-term quantum computer, can we train it like a neural network? And if we can, and we've made a lot of progress in doing this in software, but also you know how the hardware is structured, how we understand algorithms. So if so, what properties does such a machine learning system have? So how can we understand its generalization power, for example? So are they working for something? Is there a problem domain where this is like better to have a, a, a quantum device than a neural network, for example? And again, here, we also have, you know, we don't really answer the what people hope when they ask, is quantum better for machine learning? Because we, at the moment, we've got very small problems that we can only investigate on in our prototypes, because these computers are very small at the moment, obviously. Um, and often, we also do simulations of these computers. And if we would put them on the real devices, like the world changes again completely, and the answers become very different. And then very often also these studies like try and try and try until they find a case or data set for which this all of a sudden works. So often our examples are very much overfitted. So um, I think in this question, we would say like people are trying this a lot. It's very interesting. At the moment, it's a bit insufficient evidence and insufficient scale to really like say, is this true or not? And then I'll give you a third very brief example, which is also very exciting, is you could also ask if the machine learning problem comes from quantum physics, like predicting properties of a state or a molecule, can we actually show that in principle a quantum computer has an advantage just by fitting the problem? And so there's also like a lot of um, questions that, um, you know, could be taken from there and a lot of studies in that direction is a very exciting field. And here the answers are also, it's not so obvious. It's not by default given that a quantum computer should be better because machine learning systems are just immensely powerful. So yeah, so basically the answer to the question is can quantum computing help really depends on how you break it down. And actually, as always in science, that's actually the challenge, right? How do you break it down well to get meaningful answers? So so in that third example, is is that the situation where, um, I don't know, machine learning is used to classify molecules or understand the structure or properties of molecules? And because molecules are inherently quantum, then somehow a, a quantum machine learning system would be better at doing that? Is that, is that the idea? That's an intuition. And obviously, this goes into a, a very interesting um, intersection between quantum chemistry and quantum machine learning, which you know makes people very excited. I'd say at the moment, we don't know a lot about so whenever like someone comes up with an application in this area, then people who do quantum chemistry for a long time say, okay, but this hasn't been our problem in the first place. Or uh, if you calculate how many gates you actually need, this will only be solvable in 40 years time at, at most. So it is also a bit tricky, but also like physics. So there, it ranges really from fundamental physics problems like um, phase transitions or, you know, discovering phases in matter, many body systems where applications will only be downstream, you know, after the foundations have been laid. Um, it could also be to build quantum computers, for example, to understand how quantum states or errors in quantum states look like. So, um, but at the, in my view, so people always sell this as the most exciting part, but in my view, this is still very much speculation and, and the real use cases have to be nitty gritty in the, in the details of how your physical system works. They can't be very abstract, I guess. And, and how would you implement um, machine learning on a, a, a nascent quantum processor, I suppose, the, th the sort of thing that, that would be available today? Are the, is the way that, that quantum 
processors are built and set up? Is, uh, is, is it a natural fit to machine learning? Yes, there is a very natural fit. So as you know, quantum computers basically are just uh, you know experiments where you vary some some physical parameters, for example, the frequency of a laser pulse or an electromagnetic field, uh, to implement these models we've got constructed about quantum computers. Um, so you could either um, you know manipulate or think of these parameters as, for example, weights in a big neural network. So this is how the most popular machine learning systems work: is that you just tune weights and often like millions and millions of these weights. Um, so one of the most uh, you know, famous approaches is to, to just basically take parameters in your quantum algorithms. They could be at the, at the physical level, but they're often a bit more at an abstract level of what we call like parameterized quantum gates. Um, and you just like optimize them and then you see what happens. And they're sometimes called this, this, this idea, is sometimes called a quantum neural network. I've been traditionally a bit opposed to this idea because it has absolutely nothing to do mathematically with a neural network except from this idea of, of optimizing. But a few things are quite interesting because we can use, for example, software for optimizing neural networks to optimize quantum computers. So in some sense, there is a lot of, of fit on, on the other hand. And, and so what is Xanadu doing in the quantum machine learning space at the moment? Yes, so uh, at Xanadu, basically our mission is to build quantum computers that are useful and available for people everywhere. And so part of this is obviously building the quantum computers, the hardware. So we have got a, a bit of a an underdog path. We're using uh, photonics, and this is like a, a very exciting but also very challenging uh, proposal. Um, but this availability part is important. So on the other hand, a lot of us at Xanadu are, are really busy to, to think of applications of programmability of how quantum computers can be integrated and, and people can work with them very generically. And some of these uh, questions are very high level. So for example, how what are software paradigms for quantum computers? And machine learning, I think I mentioned this before uh, a little bit, is that it really has introduced also a different paradigm of how you think so that you take a big model class that has parameters and then you tune them and you optimize. So you turn a problem into an optimization problem. So now we know that we can do this with quantum algorithms as well. We can optimize parameters. So for us, like machine learning on the one hand is really like uh, inspiration of a new computational paradigm that we are investigating with quantum computers. And so the software that most uh, people know us for in the field, um, Penny Lane is, for example, a quantum machine learning software, basically leveraging this. But then we also have you know, pure quantum machine learning research where you can, uh, you know, go a little bit more into the fundamentals. Um, because uh, the idea is really that um, one day we want uh, quantum computers to be used. We need to really, like, get the fields right and these questions I was talking about earlier right from the start in order to not get stuck at these moments where academic questions just, like, have... Uh, elapse themselves and nothing is happening. So in some sense for us, machine learning really has the role to, to, to kind of like ask where are the blind spots at the moment in the field of quantum machine learning? Where do we have to intervene and do research now so that in five to 10 years time, these ideas are unlocked that might look completely different from how we do quantum applications nowadays. So it's really like a lot of like sit down, critically think how to do things very differently to unlock one day what we want to do with these machines. 
Wow, wow, that sounds like uh, like quite a challenge. If you'd like to read more of uh, Maria's thoughts on uh, quantum computing and machine learning, um, she's published a preprint with her Xanadu colleague, Nathan Kaloran, that asks the question, is quantum advantage the right goal for quantum machine learning? And you can find that preprint on the archive server. Thanks for being on the podcast, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. Motor racing has always been at the cutting edge of technological development, and this has contributed much to the public good. That's the argument put forth in Racing Green, how motorsports science can change the world. The latest book from the journalist and science historian Kit Chapman. Here he is in conversation with Physics World's Laura Hiscott. I'm joined by Kit Chapman, a science journalist who has recently written a book called Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World. The book explores how research done to develop better racing cars for competitions like Formula One and NASCAR can also be applied in the wider world to advance sustainability and even save lives. Welcome to the podcast, Kit. Thank you for having me. Um, so my first question is, I was curious about what made you want to write this book? Well, I was in a, a strange situation. I was trying to lose weight. I was a bit of a chunky monkey. And I went to a friend's um, house and he said, can, can you work out um, in this particular person's house because he's got a great gym? And it turned out that person was a race car driver. Uh, his name is Martin Short. He's raced in Le Mans. He actually led Le Mans. And when I arrived... On his driveway was a Brabham, which is a million pounds supercar, and David Brabham, a Formula One driver. Um, and so we just got talking about technologies and I started talking about some of the science. He was talking about the racing. And I suddenly realized that not only is so much stuff spilling out of motorsport that we use today, a lot of it is about green technologies as well. These are all technologies that we can actually use to battle climate change. And when we think about motor racing, we think about cars going around in circles. It seems really wasteful. Well, actually, there's a hidden story there, and I wanted to tell it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That that sounds really interesting. And um, I guess um, I was also curious, were you a fan of motorsport before you wrote this book? I, I'm a lifelong fan. Um, so I, one of my first memories, in fact, I start off the book by talking about this horrendous memory um, in 1994 when I came downstairs one night. We, we were living in Hong Kong and I'd gone to bed and the Formula One was on and my mum was in tears that morning and I said, what's, what's the matter? And she said, Ayrton Senna's been killed. And it's one of those moments in my childhood that I never forget. So I grew up with motor racing. I was a Nigel Mansell fan. I love Ricardo Patrese, Gerhard Berger, Prost and Senna. And it's the one sport that I followed all the way through my life. Wow. And yeah, like you say, there's a lot of science and research that goes into it. And it seems like a really good entry point because it has millions of fans worldwide. It seems a great entry point to get people interested in science. Was that something that happened with you um, or which interest came first? It's hard to say. I mean, I've always been interested in science and, and the engineering skill. You're absolutely right. When you look at the teams that put together these cars, 
we often think about the superstars like Lewis Hamilton, you know, driving around the track. It's a team of thousands of engineers who are working, you know, all around the, the world. They're working sort of 24-7, sometimes 365 days a year um, to sort of make these cars the best they can be. And if they can get them faster by a ten thousandth of a second or a thousandth of a second, they consider themselves having done a good job. And these people can walk into any job in engineering. They're, they've got degrees in physics. They've got degrees in aerospace engineering. They could work on fighter planes. Um, so I'm always impressed by just the level of ability that the engineers have. And that's something that really excited me. One thing I really wanted to show as well is that there are so many hidden stories in Formula One of um, people from minority backgrounds, particularly women engineers. And we just don't talk about them because we don't see that on track. Whereas if you actually look at it a little bit deeper, the person who came up with simulators for Formula One, that was Caroline Hargrove. Um, Delphine Biscay, she works for, for Venturi. Kim Stevens, she now is the um, uh, aerodynamicist for Lewis Hamilton. She came up with the Buckeye Bullet design, which broke the land speed record for electric cars. So there are so many hidden stories of women uh, in STEM, and I wanted to tell those stories as well. Yeah, that's amazing because, um, yeah, like you say, the the actual driver is the most visible person, but there are actually so many more people behind developing these cars. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more actually about the, those researchers because you talk about in your book about how there's this kind of trickle down almost of the research from the sport um, into everyday life applications. Is that much of a interaction between the researchers that work on motorsports and sort of more traditional academic researchers? There's a combination. It really depends on the area. So if you look at something like safety, for example, there's huge overlap. A lot of the safety technologies that have been introduced in motorsport, things like the hands device, that comes from uh, someone at Michigan State University um, that was a, a physicist. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the applications that have been done in medicine, so we use the technology of Formula One to transport neonatal babies. We've got these protective shells for them. We also use techniques from pit, uh, pit stops uh, to actually streamline surgery at Great Ormond Street Hospital. And so there's a huge overlap with academics working with the profession to make, make these technologies effective. When you actually look at other applications, it's really outside of academia, but always applied science. So a great example there is, is Worth. Worth um, have been in motorsport for about almost 30 years now. And they have done everything from actually running a team to working on the aerodynamics for a team. And they're experts in CFD, computational fluid, di uh, fluid dynamics. And they use CFD techniques to model uh, aerodynamics on a Formula One car, but they then take that same technology and they use it to model flow from a skyscraper. So how is wind shear actually going to affect pedestrians down on the ground? How can we minimize that? They look at controlling the flow of air from cold freezers in supermarkets. How can we prevent air spilling out and thus saving energy and reducing carbon footprint and keeping people's feet warm? So it's so it's not just academia it's also spilling out into sort of companies and and in the world of applied science wow that seems like there are really countless applications there that you've just mentioned that i'd never even considered it's it it's it's staggering it was one of those things that i, I knew a couple uh, to begin with and i thought okay i'll have like you know 10 case studies that's that's a good book and i found it was 10 case studies per chapter i mean it just 
kept going off. There are so many little footnotes where I have to just include a side story that happened. But you go to somewhere like the Ohio State University, they have got, um, they've got, well, it's called the CAR. Um, it's their center for um, uh, automobile uh, research. And they are doing, they've got the world's fastest electric car. They're working with major car companies. They're even working with the US government. So on the timing of, um, of, of traffic lights. And so the idea is that if they can sync up the timing of traffic lights with how an AI car approaches it, and sort of this internet of things, then you can prevent the AI car slowing down too much. Because if you keep something at a constant speed, you use less fuel. So it prevents people breaking and wasting the energy just by reducing them by one or two miles per hour or speeding them up by one or two miles per hour so that they move through the lights without any uh, without having to stop. So all of this kind of technology that we, we don't even think about, it all comes together in racing. Wow, that's amazing. So we've we've talked a little bit about some of the examples there of how how it can influence sustainability um, and contribute to that field. Um, do you have any kind of favourite examples um, that that are sort of now spilling out into into the wider world? I, I love some of the stories that I've been looking at with things like graphene, for example. I love the origin story of graphene, which again is in academia. This uh, these Friday night projects done by Andre Game, which is just wonderful stories and when you come across something like that literally playing with a pencil and some sellotape and you discover a material that is going to change the next hundred years that's fantastic um i think the story that that sort of struck with me um it's one of the really early ones i didn't realize the first ever purpose-built race car was electric i assumed that it would be petrol and when you realize that electric has actually been there right from the start the first ever land speed record over um, 100 kilometers an hour was set by an electric car in fact the first ever land speed record was set by an electric car you suddenly realize how long these connections have been going on and that for me is an illustration right from the start motor racing has been about electric and we're now going to come back to that after you know 100 years of the ICE uh -huh. that's so interesting that it yeah that it was there from the start and then we moved away and now it's going back to its roots almost um yeah um and i was wondering um because in your book you also describe um the the story of how in 2020 the racing driver roman grosjean survived what looked like an absolutely awful crash at i think 192 kilometers per hour and yet he survived with only minor burns and a sprained ankle. Um, so I was wondering if you could describe some of the safety features that um, were in place that saved his life in that accident. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Roman Grosjean crash, you're absolutely right. I was watching the, the crash live when it happened. And it's horrific. You, I, I saw the, the car skid off and you think, OK, it's going to be a small crash. But no, it suddenly bursts into flames. And the big question is, how is he going to survive this? Um, it's it's horrific. But when you actually walk through, um, the FAI did a fantastic report that's actually, anyone can download it and read through exactly what happens. It tells you, you know, the impact level that he, he suffered and what happened at each stage. Formula One now operates on a Swiss cheese model. And the idea is that every slice does have holes in it. But if you have a whole mound of, of slices, you're very unlikely to have a, one hole that goes all the way through. So you, you kind of stop stop person getting hurt. Um, and so they have three sort of levels. One is the car itself, how it's constructed. You've got a safety shirt cell, which is made of, um, of Kevlar. 
That, in Jean's case, uh, took most of the brunt, although it did bend in and then trap his leg very briefly. You've got the, the hands device, which is this protective harness that prevents you from breaking your neck when there's a uh, heavy impact. Obviously, he's wearing a crash helmet. There is a halo device, which is a titanium alloy uh, sheet that is in front of the driver. Grosjean himself didn't want that. He'd actually campaigned against it. And it is the one thing that saved his life because as the barrier came up, if it hadn't been there, it would probably have struck his head and, and maybe even decapitated him. So all of these things are taking place. The barriers designed themselves. Um, it was a uh, it was an Armco barrier that he actually struck. That particular design is meant to absorb impact and transfer it, um, which physicists are obviously very, very familiar with. Then you've got the uh, the suit himself. Themselves, it's made out of um, of, uh, of aramid structures, which is which are designed to be uh, highly temperature resistant, not temperature proof, but temperature resistant. Um, which is why he didn't suffer burns anywhere other than his hands, which is obviously a weak point because you're wearing the gloves. Um, you've got a medical car that was uh, it actually had taken a shortcut to get behind him, and so. As, as the drivers launched off, the, the medical car was about 15 seconds behind. That's something that only came into place because of countless deaths that were occurring in the 1970s, 1980s. So people were learning lessons. And again, coming back to the death of Ayrton Senna in 1994, people really shot up and took notice and realized we have to take care of safety. And since then, there's only been one fatality in, in Formula One, uh, which was... Um, uh, Jules Bianchi uh, in um, uh, in two, 20, 2015, I, I think I'm, um, he actually died, uh, which was horrific. But the fact that the safety has transformed to the point that we that Roman Grosjean, as you mentioned, he goes through a horrific crash, um, you know, almost two hundred miles per hour. He hits a barrier. He is suffering a huge amount of g force, and he can walk away and get out of flames within twenty seven seconds. Is uh -huh. astonishing to me. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. So um, you also discuss actually how some of this technology has been um, transferred into everyday applications to actually save lives um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about those links there. That's one of my favorite stories for the book. And, and if I'm honest, that's the story where the book all came together. Because when you're writing a book, you're sort of wondering, I've got these these bits and, and this bit, how do I actually stitch everything into into one moment and i spoke to rebecca shipley at uh, university college london and she told me the story i managed to find some actual interviews done with with the mercedes team and this whole story just emerged so as i'm sure most people will remember in 2020 um, march 2020 everything started becoming very very scary and london didn't have enough ventilators so the government put together a ventilator challenge can we actually build these ventilators and UCL realized that ventilators were a final step. And actually, we needed something a bit less than that. We needed breathing machines, CPAP devices, uh, things people used for, for snoring aids, basically, because that would give people enough air, but it wouldn't mean they were put on a ventilator and they would have to stay on it for months. So they came up with this design. They, they found an old CPAP design, and they were like, how can we actually manufacture enough of these to be useful in the pandemic? And they phoned up um, Mercedes AMG's high-performance high powertrains unit. And these are the guys that build the engines for Mercedes. They did it for Racing Point while they were there. Sorry, Force India as well when they were there. Um, they phoned up the Mercedes experts and uh, get through to a guy called Ben Hodgkinson. He says, I'm going to put you on to, to my boss. 
And the head of Mercedes engines division says, do not hesitate to call on the full might of what we can do. And they go from prototype from never having seen a CPAP device or having to look at it. Three of the Mercedes engineers headed down that night. They didn't leave for three days. They had to buy clothes from around the corner. They went from from not having ever made one to prototyping and getting it approved in basic rapid time. And within under a month, they had 10,000 of these devices in the NHS working for patients. So the fact that you can go from zero, having never created a machine to not only prototyping and approval through the MHRA, and in fact, they actually improved a second device in that time to improve it, but then to manufacture 10,000 medical devices, having you know essentially a, 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 a garage that's set up for Formula One cars and converting it entirely, that's astonishing. And the fact that they can do that and the fact that they have the ability to do that just impresses the hell out of me yeah that is so incredible that um they could do that so quickly and clearly saved countless lives um and helped the nhs so much um i was wondering actually um this leads me on to my next question um do you hope that the book might sort of change attitudes earlier you mentioned that some people a lot of people probably kind of see motorsports as something that's quite environmentally damaging and not that helpful um but i was wondering if you think um if you hope that your book might change attitudes of people who feel like that i hope so i mean i hope the book does two things the first is that it showcases the incredible engineering ability of, of these teams and, and what you can actually do when you apply yourself. And that, I hope, in, will encourage more people to look into, into STEM subjects. If there is a young girl who's reading that thinking, I could never be in Formula One, I'm not a boy or something like that, and they can see these role models and think, actually, I can do that, that's a win for me. Um, uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a really strong sort of driver. I would love to inspire, um, for my last book, which was, um, super heavy focused on periodic table stuff. Um, I got a few letters from students saying, I've read your book and now I'm going into chemistry. And that is, that makes your day, your week, your month, or even your year to misquote friends. Um, so if I could do that with formula, with racing green and, and formula one, fantastic. But if I can show people how environmentalism and green technologies isn't just about sort of the things that we often talk about, that it's part of our daily lives and it occurs in so many different ways that we don't even think about, these invisible technologies. And it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. And these sports that we sort of deride often are actually really helping us pioneer new ideas. This idea of interconnectivity, the fact that our world isn't into these little isolated pieces, that science is a holistic approach, that's something I really hope that people can take from the book. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really, really important. Um, like you say, it's all connected and multidisciplinarity is becoming more and more important, I think, in, in science as a whole moving forward. Um, I, the last question I wanted to ask you was, um, because obviously this research and development is always ongoing, um, I was wondering if there's like a particular innovation that you're most excited to see implemented in the next few years or like a particular focus area that you're most interested to see improvements in? So I'm really excited about, uh, <laughs> as good as this sounds so wrong, I'm really excited about rubber. Um, so one of the things that I did actually with the book, I went down the Amazon River 
and I actually saw where we get the para rubber tree from. We don't actually grow it there anymore. It moved to Thailand now predominantly in Southeast Asia. That's a whole story. The British basically stole the seeds from the Brazilians uh, in probably the, the greatest act of biopiracy in the world. Um, an industry worth billions and the British just stole it. But that's another tale. Um, now, because of various blights affecting these trees, because they're all clones, because the British stole the seeds, um, and because of climate change and the fact that we can't keep producing uh, rubber in, the, in these tropical environments, we need to start looking at other sources around the world. We've gone back and we're looking at alternatives to rubber. And one of the strongest ones at the moment is the rubber dandelion. So the Russian dandelion is being investigated by Continental, and they've already started making tires from dandelions. So that's going to be seen in Europe. Um, in America, they're looking at a shrub called wahuli, which grows in the deserts of northern Mexico. There's no reason they couldn't grow it in Arizona, say, for example. And so we're going to start seeing these rubber fields emerge in Europe and North America. And what we always think of as a tropical plant is actually going to start being having a much more localized source. And this is all down to the chemistry and, and the physics of, and the particular properties of these plants. Um, so again, it's, it's that uh, collaborative approach. You've got chemistry, biology, and physics in there coming to change our tires. But when you think about how many tires there are in the world, um, it's really going to have a huge impact. Yeah, definitely. It will all add up. Well, it certainly got me more excited and interested to, to follow the developments um, in the next few years. You can read more about Kit's book, Racing Green, on the Physics World website. Look out for a review with the title, Racing to Save the Planet. Thanks for being on the podcast, Kit. Thank you for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Maria Schuld, Kit Chapman and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to physicists and engineers about the latest breakthrough in fusion research and how they are working to make commercial fusion energy a reality. The episode is called Jet's Record Result and the Quest for Fusion Energy. And you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.